0: Good morning, beloved. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you grab it while you are standing and turn to the letter of Third John? Third John, reading this short letter together this morning, beginning in verse 1, we read, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. As it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly with the brothers, or when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, to put, who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the truth the truth that is found in your son, Jesus. Out of your love and out of your mercy, your spirit has revealed to us that Jesus is the truth. We thank you for being able to gather together this morning as the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth. We ask you, oh God, to teach us from your word this morning that we would glorify you by walking in the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated, church. Well, it's rather embarrassing to say out loud, but one of the first world challenges that we face is grabbing a paper towel out of a dispenser after washing our hands. Now, some of you are, are, are very familiar with this. If you're in a restaurant or some other public building, you are aware of this black or gray box that sits on the wall with a little dangling paper towel at the bottom of it that hangs out about two inches. And so you finish washing your hands, and you go up to it, it says, pull here. And so you stick out your hand, and you pull here. And what happens? You get a little scrap of paper towel between your fingers. And so you go, okay, I know physics, I know how this works, I'm going to go on both edges, and I'm going to pull down. And so you do that, and what happens? You get two more little pieces of tissue in your fingers. And so determined, you're like, I'm not going to get outwitted by this little dispenser. And so you go to the center, and you grab, and what happens? Two more chunks of paper until all that two inches is gone. Does this sound familiar? Have you experienced this? We get defeated by the machine. The majority of that paper towel is still stuck inside of that dispenser. And I would say that for many professing Christians, this is similar to their understanding of the Christian's participation in gospel work. They have some pieces of it, but they lack the fullness of it. They have a handful of verses that they know, but they don't know how they apply daily in their lives. They know that Jesus instructed that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few And Jesus said, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Christians are familiar with that. We're to pray, pray that God would send out those into the harvest. We're also familiar with the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, Jesus said, all that he has commanded And behold, Jesus says, he will be with you to the end of the age. We even know this is called the Great Commission. We're familiar with that, but how does that get played out in our lives? We know that Jesus, being with his disciples, after he was raised from the dead, told them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How does that apply to us, beloved? Because there are many who think gospel work is for those who are in full-time ministry. It is reserved only for them. But we see in Scripture this is definitely not the case. That every genuine believer, those who have been gifted with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, they are now new creations in Christ. Their lives have been radically redirected from paths of destruction to paths of righteousness, from lives of falsehood to lives of truth. And such, every believer is now called to be a fellow worker for the truth. That's the title of this morning's sermon, Fellow Workers for the Truth. This morning, we're looking at the first half of this letter of Third John. If you've been with us, you remember that we began back on January 1st with John's first epistle. And we've studied through that in many Sundays together where John wanted to give us the assurance that we have salvation in Christ. That assurance cannot be taken away. And he gave three tests throughout that letter. And many of you are so familiar with that by now. He gave the truth test that every believer has a God-given ability to testify to the truth about who Christ is, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the one who took on flesh and came and dwelt among us to live a perfect life and to give his life as a perfect sacrifice. But John also unpacked the love test that everyone who genuinely knows the truth about who Jesus is loves like Christ loves And they demonstrate their love for God by a love for God's people. And the third test that we studied through that was the obedience test. That those who genuinely know the truth and demonstrate love, their love is an example being demonstrated that they obey God. Their obedience testifies that they truly love God. What John wanted us to know is when you are saved, you are always saved. That this is a work of God that he does in our lives. It is for our good, but it's for his glory. And what God begins, God completes. And he wanted you to have that assurance of salvation in Jesus. Last week, Sean took us through 2 John. And we looked at that letter of 2 John where John then goes on with that same theme and says, believers are to walk in truth and love. That truth and love are two sides of the same coin. That believers are to walk in both of them. That the truth cannot be demonstrated in the absence of love, and love cannot be demonstrated in the absence of truth. And this morning, we'll be looking at the first half of John's third epistle, where truth and love are continuing as a theme to John's writing. Now, before we get into looking at what he writes here in 3 John, let me give you a little bit of background about this letter. For those of you that love trivia, this is the shortest book in the New Testament. In the Greek, there are only 219 words in this letter of 3 John. It is so short, it's often referred to as the postcard epistle. Many of you are still familiar with postcards, right? You only write so much on that postcard. We know that one of the early church historians, Eusebius, he recorded that 3 John was written after John was released from the island of Patmos. And so, if his recordings are accurate, this means that this letter is the last written book in the New Testament. And it's a short letter. And as we just read through it, we can quickly see that the letter revolves around John's description. About three men and their reputations, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. This morning we'll be looking at John's description of Gaius. He goes and he commends this man named Gaius in the first opening eight verses. And to help us understand it a little bit deeper, understand the context. Missionaries, those who are sent out by the local church to preach and teach the gospel would rely on the hospitality of other believers to take care of their needs. This concept of hospitality underlies Jesus' charge when he sent out the 70. In Luke chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, Jesus told the 70 as he sent them out, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace Be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. These were the words of Jesus. And later in the book of Acts, we would see time and again the hospitality that was shown to Peter, Paul, and the others allowing them to stay in their homes and providing for their needs. But sadly, the Scripture also tells us that all who traveled as missionaries were not proclaiming the truth. Last week we saw in John's second letter a warning, a warning of who not to show hospitality to. If you look back, I'm sure it's just one page to the left in your Bibles. In 2 John, verses 8 through 11, We read John writing, he says, watch yourselves so you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. I mean, do not provide for him. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so, how were believers to discern whether this person is proclaiming truth or not? Well, obviously, one is if they have heard them speak, they should be able to understand and discern truth. But one of the common practices in the early church is that letters of recommendation would be sent with missionaries so they can give to the local church that they're visiting. And that local descending church would commend them unto them. That they would vouch for their theological credibility. So they know we can listen to this individual. Now this practice was put in place. So believers would know who to receive and support. And also who to reject and not support. And so as we look to this text this morning... We see that John begins this letter the same way he did, 2 John, referring to himself as the elder. He says, the elder. John is most likely in his 80s at writing this. So those of you that are advancing in age, John is still very active in serving the church. And so he's actively still serving, he's writing, he's carrying forward other believers. But though he is old, and we could say he is an elder by age, it's more looking to his spiritual care of being an elder. He is the last standing of the apostles. He is the one who is left. He is not an elder. He is the elder. And it shows his spiritual care for Gaius as he writes this letter. And so we know that his name is Gaius, who is the recipient of this letter. But church, we don't know anything else about this man. We have no other details of this Gaius that John is writing to. You say, well, no, I'm pretty sure I've seen this name before in Scripture. Well, you'll find it in Romans. You'll, you'll hear of a Gaius of Corinth. You'll, you'll hear of a name Gaius in Acts a couple times. There's Gaius of Macedonia. There's Gaius of Derby. Well, one little fact about the name Gaius, it was one of the most common names in Roman society. And so the Gaius that John is addressing should not be assumed to be any of these other Gaiuses that we've heard of. It would be like reading a letter from the last decade that was addressed to somebody in the church named John. And you go, well, is that John MacArthur? Is it John Piper? Is it our beloved John leader? Or is it some less notable of all the thousands of less notable Johns who are serving in a local church? All we know is that John commends the actions of this Gaius, that he is walking in the truth. And he opens up in this letter with this continued theme of truth and love. In the opening eight verses, he uses the word truth five times and including the word beloved, he uses love five times. It's a common theme of John's. So look to your Bibles with me as we look at the opening of this letter in the first four verses. We read, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. As it goes well with your soul, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. From the very beginning, we see that John's affection for Gaius is clearly seen as he refers to him as beloved multiple times. And what's this love based upon? John says it's based upon truth. It's truth of the gospel. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. It's truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. This is the truth that he speaks of. It is the truth that brings genuine Christians in real fellowship one with another. Like a fine tapestry, we are woven together beautifully in Christ. We see in verse 3, John writes that he has received a good report about Gaius from some of the missionaries. Well, this is interesting because Gaius has done these actions in private. But what he has done in obeying Christ and loving Christ and demonstrating love to these missionaries in private has become a public testimony of the genuineness of his faith. Note that Gaius was not commending himself. He wasn't saying, look what I've done. Everybody know who I supported. Look how much I gave. But it was from their very mouths that they boasted in him. It was from those whom he had served. And John commends him for walking in the truth and says in verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that My children are walking in the truth. Most likely, Gaius had come to faith under John's preaching and teaching. And now John now sees him as a child in the faith. And so what do we know from this opening about this man named Gaius? We know that there is no contradiction between the truth that he professed and the truth that he lived. That his orthodoxy was in line with his orthopraxy, meaning he lived what he believed. This man Gaius was a doer. Not a hearer only. He was the real deal. He had been saved by Christ. He had been transformed by Christ. And he now abided in Christ. And lived out the truth to others. Gaius's life is evidenced by his love. And his love is a demonstration that he was first loved. Christ loved him. Beloved, Christ loves you. And so what was it that he actually did? What, what is he being commended for actually? Well, what does it look like? Well, look with me at verses 5 through 8. John continues says beloved is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the gentiles therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth so what was Gaius being commended by John for for being a fellow worker for the truth. And what exactly did he do? He faithfully supported missionaries. He faithfully supported those who were preaching and teaching Christ. He was one who was hospitable. He welcomed them to stay in his home. He fed them and provided for their needs. And he most likely prayed for them and encouraged them. And we see that when they left again to the mission field, he provided monetarily for their journey. Gaius was simply walking in obedience to the truth. He knew that the gospel is supposed to go out. He knew that every believer has been commissioned for the gospel to go around the world. And he was participating in it by showing hospitality and sending these missionaries. He was a fellow worker for the truth. He lived in the same way that every believer should live. And so what we see at the beginning of the latter half of verse 6, continuing all the way to verse 8, is some of the most specific instruction given in the New Testament concerning missionary support. And so let's look at it again. Halfway through verse 6. John writes, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John writes this not only for the benefits of the missionaries, but also for the benefit of believers. That all believers could be called fellow workers of the truth. That they could fulfill the commandment of God. That the gospel would go out to the uttermost parts of the world. And so here is where I want to focus our attention this morning. We know that we are to pray that God would send out laborers and missionaries. That they would take the gospel to unreached people and unchurched people. We know that we are to make disciples of all nations by preaching and teaching the gospel and by baptizing and by teaching people how to obey Christ's commands. We know this is to be done locally as well as globally. It is not just within our walls, but from without as well that we are to send the gospel. And so, how does this get accomplished biblically? Every believer, beloved, that includes you, is a fellow worker for the truth. That includes every single one of us who are in Christ. Well, well, how does that work biblically? Well, there are those who are sent, as we will see. And there are those who send, as we will also see. And as a believer, you are one or the other. It is possible that you can be both but you are at least one or the other. And so let's look first this morning that there are those who are sent. There are those who are sent. They're sent to preach and teach about Christ. Look at verse seven again. John says in verse seven that they have gone out for the sake of the name. And they know that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They have that conviction and they go out to tell others about Jesus. Their primary focus as they go out is preaching and teaching Christ and him crucified. Their time, their energy, it's all entirely invested in making Christ known. That's what their whole point of being sent out is. They have given their lives to the calling of making disciples. And like Paul, their mission is to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. That's how Paul writes about his mission in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Later on in Romans, and you could turn there, we read it as one of our public readings this morning, in Romans chapter 10. I'll give those of you that want to flip there a minute to flip there. Romans 10, we'll read, reread part of what we read this morning. In Romans 10, we get to verse 9. And we read in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Obviously, we know from Scripture that there are those who are sent, but not all are sent. But those who are called by the Lord, they will go. They have been given a gift of faith to trust Christ, to spend their lives preaching and teaching about him. They will be qualified by the Spirit and equipped by the local church to go. And listen to this. They will be the best that the local church has. They will be the best. They are those who have been qualified by the Spirit. And they are those who are fruitful in ministry in the local church. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this. Spurgeon said, quote, You will never make a missionary of the person who does no good at home. He that will not serve the Lord in the Sunday school at home will not win children to Christ in China. End quote. We see this in Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit directs the church in Antioch to set apart those who would be sent. And out of the whole church, guess who the Spirit identifies? Paul and Barnabas. Some of the best that the church had. They are the ones to be sent. They are biblically qualified to preach and to teach and to lead. They are those who the Spirit has qualified with all of the qualifications for an elder that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Now, I was preparing this week. I read an article by Nine Marks. It was written by Pastor Steve Jennings. He's a pastor who pastors in the 1040 window. Pastor Steve writes this. He says, quote, There are many times when I want to say stop to, this, to the Western church. Stop sending them. Stop sending underqualified missionaries. He later continued in the article. Here's the question I wish more churches would consider. Why would you send someone to plant churches abroad who you would never hire as a pastor or nominate as a lay elder? Why does it seem that passion, quote unquote, rather than proven faithfulness in the main, is the main criterion for sending men and women to support those church planters? Here's a man who was frustrated. He is in the mission field and those being sent to him are unqualified individuals. Those who are not fruitful in ministry. See, biblically, as Paul and Barnabas are set aside or set apart by the Holy Spirit, it should be the best. It is those who are faithful in the local church. Those are the ones the church should affirm the calling they have upon their life and therefore the church should send them. So, do you believe that God is calling you to the mission field? Maybe you believe you're being led to to plant a church somewhere. I would say this, if so, following the biblical model, are you faithfully using your gifts and serving this church? That the body here could affirm that calling upon your life. Are you seeking to grow in your abilities to serve Christ? Have you spoken to the elders about your desire? As one of the elders here, I can tell you that we believe that a healthy church is a sending church. And we desire to equip you for the calling that God has upon your life. What about those of us who don't believe that we are those who are sent? Well, remember, there are those who are sent, but there are also those who send. And so let's look at the second part of this this morning. We'll transition to there are those who send. As a church, we are called to equip and to send missionaries. And just like at Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent as missionaries, we are to send those who are equipped and faithful in our church. Now, I want you to think about the church in Antioch. Think about losing men of the caliber of Paul and Barnabas. Do you think that took a toll on the local church? Absolutely. You have men who are faithfully using their gifts and they are called to leave, to go. And so that local church is impacted. They feel the pains of those who are being sent off, yet they are fellow workers for the truth. They are participating in the gospel going forward around the world. This means that the local church is willing to pay the price to be involved in making disciples of all nations. And so as gifted, qualified individuals are sent off, there are holes that are left in the church, which means we must all be ready at all times to step up and to fulfill those roles that God has gifted each of us for the health of the body so that if he sends some out, He has those within the body with the gifts to step into the roles of those individuals. Well, how do I know? How do I know if I have those gifts? Start serving. If you are not actively serving the body, start serving. There are many opportunities to serve. And as you serve, you will see the areas where God has specifically gifted you to be a blessing to his people, to be a blessing to him. Corporately, as a church, we are to be fellow workers of the truth. We are to be senders. We glean from that same article, that Nine Arcs article that I referenced earlier. I have a longer quote I want to read because Pastor Steve goes on and concludes with seven suggestions on how to prepare people to go to the nation's. And so I'll read those to you. The first thing he says is teach them well so that they will be able to teach others well. Don't send them until they have shown that they can do the same based upon 2 Timothy 2.2. Secondly, he says, make sure that they are able to articulate sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. An inability to answer objections and correct falsehood is a recipe for disaster when encountering other religions or worse, other errant missionaries. Based upon Titus 1.9 and Ephesians 4.14. Thirdly, he says, make sure they're able to submit to biblical authority. Are they mavericks who have never really had their autonomy challenged? If this is the case, they need to spend time gladly submitting to accountability before they can be sent with confidence. Based upon Hebrews 13, 17, and 18. Point four, he says, is connected with point number three. It's the need for proven godly character. This is something that can only be ascertained over an extended period of close interaction and persistent discipleship, not a session with a counselor and a personality profile. Unchecked sins get worse on the front lines, not better, based upon Hebrews 12.1. Fifthly, he says, if you would not make a man an elder in your church, then don't send him to plant churches anywhere much less overseas. If you are sending someone who isn't elder material or isn't quite there yet, then I would suggest sending them somewhere with an established church where you know their spiritual development and ministry will be, seen by faith, will be overseen by faithful shepherds based upon Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Two more points that he has. Point number six, the aim of every pioneer worker you send should be one of two things. Joining an existing church or gathering believers to start a new church as soon as possible. If there is no church, then I would suggest moving with a core of people as opposed to individually. No Christians were meant to be alone. Ecclesiology and missiology should be inseparably intertwined. Churches plant churches. And seventh, he says, finally, let there be consensus in the sending church that these people being sent are called and ready. This will safeguard the ones being sent and give them an amazing boost of encouragement that they are part of something bigger than their own ambition, which can easily fade or redirect quickly, based on Acts 13.3. So this is a man who is in the mission field. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to receive missionaries that are unqualified. He says, send your best, prepare them well. And beloved, this is the type of church that we aim to be. We want to be a church that equips and sends those who are called to go. We want to send those who are qualified, those who are equipped and currently demonstrating their faithfulness and fruitfulness in the church. And though we act corporately together as a church, as individual Christians, those who send are called to do more than just affirm someone's calling or fill the void when they leave. Look back to our text this morning. The latter half of verse six, John says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. What is John referring to here? He's referring to financial assistance, giving monetarily to support them and their family while they serve as a missionary. He is saying that a laborer is worthy of his full wages. And John continues in verse 7 and points out that the missionaries sent out should not depend on Gentiles or or unbelievers. They should not go to unbelieving secular groups or non-believing individuals to look for support for their mission. Because the biblical model is that the church, through fellow believers, fund missionaries. That's what we see in Scripture. Missionaries depend on God to provide for them by using his people to generously support them. They depend on God. I spent, my family and I spent a short stint in Germany as missionaries for a year. Every month we would look into our checking account, and money appeared there from fellow believers who supported the work. We cried out to God, Lord, provide. And as we look, he provided through his people. And so there are those who are sent and there are those who send. And if you are one who is sent, you need those who are sending. You need those who are behind you. And this includes their financial support. Listen to the way that Paul the Apostle spoke about his financial support. In Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then later in chapter 4, Philippians, he goes on and speaks more about that. In Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 15, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what do we learn? That as we support the gospel going out, that our efforts as fellow workers for the truth, that they are pleasing to God. That his will is that the name of Christ is to be proclaimed around the world. And so as we support those efforts, we do God's will. Financially supporting missionaries should not, however, come out of our regular generous giving to the local church. That giving goes towards the expenses of the local church so that believers can regularly partake of the primary means of grace in the local church. That is the preaching of the word, baptism, communion, and prayer. Remember that without the local church, missionaries are not equipped and sent out. If we all gave a majority of our giving to the missions field, the local church would no longer be in existence, which means the flock of God is no longer being cared for and fed and ministered to, and missionaries are no longer being sent out. We must be careful in our giving, that our giving for missions would not come out of our care for the local church, but would be out of our offerings for the gospel going forth throughout the world. So we give over and above to support the gospel going forward. But not only is financial support important, that we would commit to financially support our missionaries, but we would also commit to pray for them. Because financially that will sustain their needs. But prayer empowers their ministry and their spiritual well-being as well. So when we commit to missionaries, we not only send them money, but we get on our knees before God and we intercede for them. And we also encourage them. We encourage them as they're out and they're serving. We send letters, we send cards, care packages, all as a demonstration of being fellow workers for the truth. If you've ever been on the mission field, when you receive a note from home that someone's praying for you, that they love you, and they're remembering you before the Lord, you are greatly strengthened in the Lord. What would be so simple to us of spending five minutes to write a little card pays great dividends in the life of someone who's out on the mission field. And so we care for them. So missionaries also at times, come back and they visit. And when they come back and they visit, we show hospitality. We open up our homes as Gaius did. We provide for their needs. We feed them. We care for them. We provide for them during their stay. But this would also extend our hospitality to those who need a time of rest and relaxation. There are those who extend their vacation home or their timeshare to missionaries so they can take a break from the mission field and go and be refreshed with their families. There are those who generously buy plane tickets so missionaries can come back and visit and be refreshed on a stay. We know as Christians, we are all commanded in Scripture to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. That's Romans 12.3. We also know that we're to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And that's 1 Peter 4.9. It should be our joy to be fellow workers of the truth that we would come alongside those who are the sent ones, those who are being sent out by the church, and we would care for them, provide for them. And so whether we are the ones being sent or we are the ones who are sending, we are fellow workers for the truth. But we all need to be actively participating. Are you being sent? If the answer to that is no, then guess what? You're a sender. That's how you participate. And so we believe that healthy churches plant healthy churches. And to this end, we have actively begun setting aside monies so that we are ready to financially support those who God qualifies and calls as missionaries to be sent out from this church to go and preach and teach and plant churches. We also have continued our financial support in partnering with African Christian University as the gospel goes out through that university. Many of you are familiar with that ministry and Bodhi Bakum being the former president and Conrad Mubewe being the current president. The gospel definitely goes out through African Christian University. And So if you are not being sent, you are actively sending If you want to continue in that participation of actively sending, we do have a missions fund at the church, and you can earmark any special offerings with missions. And that is specifically allotted just for missions. It goes nowhere else. And so if that is something that God puts on your heart as a sender, then be sure to earmark for missions. But you can also individually support missionaries through organizations like Heart Cry Missionary Society. That's where Paul Washer serves. And he plants churches in areas of unreached people. We're all to be involved in the gospel going out. Beloved, you are fellow workers of the truth. So as we look to Gaius' example this morning, as John commends him, and we be encouraged by his example of walking in the truth by his faithful support of missionaries. And so as I prepare to close us in prayer, let us take a quiet minute to consider how the Lord would be stirring us to respond as fellow workers of the truth. Let's bow our heads together. Father, corporately together as a church we thank you for your work of grace in our lives thank you for not only saving us but giving us opportunity to be part of the work that you are doing oh god help us to find great joy in being fellow workers for the truth we thank you for the special privilege to be those who are sent or those who send I ask, oh God, that you would help us as a church body to raise up and send out the best you give us so that the name of Christ would be proclaimed far and wide from this little church in San Diego. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.